This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alex Hughes, staff writer at Science Focus magazine. This week, I'm joined by Tom Carlson. He's a professor of assistive robotics at the University College London. He talks through the rapidly expanding world of brain-machine interfaces, a technology that can utilize signals from the brain to power wheelchairs, robot arms, and a host of other assistive technologies. He also addresses the possibility of this technology breaking into the consumer world too. So I think a good place to start is just by asking simply, what is a brain-machine interface? Okay, well, uh, a brain-machine interface is really um, an alternative way of interacting with the world. So most of us interact with the world by speaking, by touching things, by, by moving around in the world. But not everybody can do that. So a brain-computer interface exploits your your brain activity or your thoughts directly in order to control things in the real world. And without oversimplifying it, how how does a brain-machine interface actually work? Okay, so there there are a few components to a brain-machine interface. Firstly, we need to be able to record the brain activity to to understand what's going on inside the brain. And then we need to decipher some sort of intention. um, And then we can map that intention to some sort of action to to control something in the world. So maybe let's start with uh, exploring how we can record that brain activity in the first place. You might have heard of things like CT scans or or CAT scans that can, can provide an image of the brain. But this is structural. It doesn't tell us anything about that thought process that's going on in the brain. So instead, we need to use some sort of method that's functional, that can understand what the functions of the brain are and and what thoughts you're having at that time. So you might have heard of things like fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. But these are huge devices um, in hospitals. They're very, very expensive, and, and you can't just carry one of those around with you. So instead... We've been looking at devices that are are more portable, that are cheaper, that can actually understand what's going on in your brain in in real time. And so something we use in my lab is called EEG, or electroencephalography. And what this does is it's essentially looking at the electrical activity of the brain. So inside your brain, you've got billions of neurons. 
and they're all communicating with each other. And every time one neuron talks to another neuron, there's a little, what we call an action potential or, or a spike of electricity. And all of this electricity adds up in your brain. It's very, very small. But if we put electrodes on the, the, the surface of your, your scalp using something that looks like a, a fancy swimming cap with a lot of uh, wires coming out of it, then we can actually pick up this electrical activity to understand what's going on roughly where in your brain. Once we've got that, we can look at um, classifying different types of thoughts. So we can ask the, the user to think about specific things, maybe thinking about moving a hand or a leg. And we can use machine learning techniques to build up something we call a classifier. So that when we're looking at this brain activity, we can say, does this pattern of uh, electrical activity look more like moving a hand or, or moving a leg? And then once we've got that, we can then take that as an output and we can use it for telling, for example, a wheelchair to turn right or, or left or, or stop, or maybe for controlling a prosthetic limb, for example. And you talk about the way that the brain can uh, send a signal for, let's say, moving a leg. Is Would this look the same in everybody's um, head or is this different per person? So every person is different, but we have the same kind of basic building blocks within our brain. So that the structure is similar, but the exact shape and size of your brain is going to be different. So we can use some of this neurophysiological information in order to look at specific areas of the brain and also specific frequency bands for the, the electrical activity. And then we can take a, an idea of that as a, a kind of starting point, but then we, we need to customize this uh, interface to the individual. So there's a certain amount of learning, both from the machine side, so the machine learning, but also from the human side. It's a kind of mutual learning process between the machine and the human in order to get a kind of optimal communication between the two of you. And when we talk about this kind of technology, how, how far along is it? Is this, is this still very much theoretical or are there some real life examples of this being used now? So there are lots of different applications of this, this technology and it, it ranges massively. So you will find some commercial brain computer interfaces already available um, to help with, for example, uh, rehabilitation, uh, particularly after stroke, for example. And you'll find some very low-grade brain-computer interfaces targeting the gaming industry, for example. But if we want to be using this reliably um, as an assistive technology for people who don't have other ways of interacting with the world, so for example, people with a um, high-level tetraplegia who can't move their limbs might benefit from using a, a brain-computer interface based on motor imagery, so this imagination of motor tasks. And that sort of brain-computer interface we've demonstrated in the lab, we've demonstrated in, in hospitals, but it's not really at a stage yet where it's ready for day-to-day -day use. You can't just pop into the supermarket and buy this brain-computer interface and, and use it in your daily activity yet. And how would you go about installing these or is this something that needs to be installed or are we still in the stages of uh, caps on your head with sensors? Okay, well, this is a, a really great question. So 
the the brain computer interface world is divided into uh, invasive and non-invasive interfaces. So what I was talking about earlier were non-invasive methods where we can wear something like a, a swimming cap on your head that has lots of wires coming out of it. And there are also wireless versions of these that are looking a little bit more sci-fi and a, a little bit more interesting to wear. But then there's also the, the invasive uh, world as well, which um, when you talk about installing, would need surgically implanting into the brain. And really, depending on the application, you can imagine maybe quite a lot of people wouldn't want to be um, having an operation where people are embedding electrodes deep inside into the brain. But then for other people that have a a, a chronic pathology, perhaps that's an an option for them. So there are are different levels of invasiveness as well. Um, There there are examples of some sort of... uh, one can imagine a sort of brain-computer interface, like a, a deep brain stimulator that's been used clinically for, since the early 2000s. And this is particularly used for some severe cases of Parkinson's disease, where electrodes are embedded deep inside the brain, and it's used to regulate some of the, the, the brain circuits to reduce um, the tremor, for example, that you get associated with Parkinson's disease. And obviously that needs... Uh, a huge operation, lots of planning around it, and it's a quite invasive procedure, but that's a good choice for some people. We could imagine similar sort of techniques, maybe not quite so invasive, where we put electrodes on the surface of the brain, underneath the scalp, so you could have that there for for a long time. There are are teams in in the US and and in France that have done this with, with patients recently and shown that they can get some very good recordings but obviously you need to go through lots of ethics procedures for this to make sure that uh, it's going to be worthwhile for the patient. And this sort of level is still very much in the research stages at the moment. And when we're talking about these um, two different methods, what is it that is the most optimal? Or is, it, is this just more a case of what's best for each individual in a different circumstance? Yeah, well, everybody's got different goals, everybody's got different needs. So so we need to to bear that in mind. Um, I think one of the, the challenges that we have is looking at the uh, the resolution of the brain activity that we can actually capture. So I'm not into football, but given that it's the World Cup at the moment, maybe we can use a football analogy. So if you imagine what I was talking to you about earlier with this EEG, where we're putting electrodes on the, the skull and we're trying to detect tiny, tiny little uh, impulses going on between neurons deep inside the brain, that's kind of a bit like watching a football match from a helicopter hovering above a, a stadium. So without a super zoom lens. Okay, so here, the ball is really small. You can't see it. You can't identify individual players in that football stadium, but you can see roughly where they are. You can see the motion of the players. So you can kind of infer where that ball is roughly in the stadium. You might be able to to guess which team's got uh, control of the ball at a particular time. And you might see the crowd go wild at some point and, and infer that perhaps there's been a goal. But you can't really see that detail. And so that's rather like EEG. It's looking from the outside and trying to understand what's going on deep inside the brain. 
obviously the advantage of EEG is that you don't have to have an operation. Um, you can take the cap off when you, you finish with it. It's, uh, yeah, it's not too uncomfortable. And that might be sufficient for, for some patients for some level of control. But for more severe cases where we need to have much more detailed information about the brain, then perhaps we need to go deeper inside. So you want to actually be in that football stadium to understand what's going on. So you can see the players, you can really see where the ball is. And that's more like ECOG, electrocorticogram, which sits just on the surface of the brain, or even invasive recordings where we put very thin needle electrodes into the brain and you can get up really close to those groups of neurons so you can see what's going on. So obviously there you get a a richer amount of information about what's happening but at a cost in terms of you have to have a surgery and that's not without risks of uh, you know infection, damage to the brain, it's very expensive, it's going to be in there chronically or, or, or for a long time. And we, we've spoken on mainly about this as a assistive technology. Do you, do you think there's any room for uh, the technology in the abled? I mean, Elon Musk's Neuralink is picking up a lot of steam and people bring it up as an option a lot. But is there any need for them without it being assistive? That's an interesting question. I like to draw parallels with other assistive technologies here. So you may or may not have heard of environmental control units. These were very bulky, expensive, bespoke assistive technologies for people with uh, severe disabilities to help them control their their environment, control their homes, maybe open and close curtains, turn the heating on and off and things like that. And obviously now what I'm talking about is smart homes. Lots of us have various devices in our homes that we can talk to. We've got apps on our phones where we can control the lighting, the heating, etc. Whether or not we need that is another question, but there are definite advantages uh, to that. So for example, I can now only heat my home um, when I'm leaving work, uh, coming back so it's nice and warm when I get there, but not wasting energy during the day, even if my, my plans are changing. And so kind of drawing a parallel with brain-computer interfaces, The technology is incredibly expensive at the moment, but if it becomes a more widespread technology that that is used mainstream, then that would drive the cost down and benefit people that need to use it as an assistive technology. And I'm sure new uses will um, evolve as well. So I think at the moment, we see the main use is is kind of like an alternative mode of interaction in gaming, where you can add it as a a hybrid interface. So you're not using the brain-computer interface as the only method of interaction, but perhaps you use it to supplement what you're doing with a joystick or keyboard um, and, and gives you that extra level of control. But at the moment, it's it's maybe not as reliable, it's not as fast as other communication modalities. So typing or, or moving your hands is going to be more reliable and quicker than using a BCI at the moment. And with these interfaces that we've spoken about that are more permanent, the more invasive options, uh, is this something that needs to be upgraded as time goes on? Or is it something that is maybe implanted and then it's just left and the technology can handle itself over the years? So as I said uh, before, we've got different levels of invasiveness. The problem is when you stick something inside a human, generally what you create is scarring tissue. And that scar tissue actually changes the the electrical characteristics of the the tissue. So you will get a, a degradation of signals over time, which means that if you're 
sticking electrodes into the brain and you're wanting to record activity from populations of neurons around that electrode, over time, it will gradually become less and less useful. You will lose that kind of high fidelity that we're talking about before. Alternatively, if you're uh, doing something that's sort of minimally invasive, where we're putting electrodes underneath the skull, but not penetrating into the brain, so just sitting on top of the dura of the brain, then this doesn't create that same level of scarring. So those electrodes will last longer in the same place and be able to to, uh, give you that same level of fidelity over a long period of time. So that's on the hardware side of things. And then I guess like everything else, on the software side of things, we can do a lot of upgrading, we can deliver power and everything remotely. So from that point of view, that wouldn't necessarily uh, need to change. There have been a few studies um, looking at what we call chronic or long-term implants of electrodes. But typically for these kind of ones that that penetrate the brain, we're looking at a matter of months that they would stay in place and, and still be viable, usually. Whereas ECOG could potentially be uh, in the order of years. But but this is still really uh, a very active area of research. And with both the more invasive and the non-invasive methods, what, what do patients and the participants have tried out? What do they report the sensation to be like of um, having a brain machine interface? Okay, well, you can't actually feel what's inside your brain. Um, so uh, I've not tried an invasive uh, interface myself. I've, I've done a lot of uh, non-invasive interfaces and, and served my students in my lab. And also we've, we've worked with many patients as well. I think the... So, so from that point of view, you know, there's a bit of discomfort of wearing, wearing the cap or whatever. But the main thing is about getting into the right state of your brain. You can imagine there's a lot of uh, different brain activity going on and you have to become quite relaxed, almost like in a meditative state so that you've got very calm brain signals and we can really distinguish the ones that we're, we're looking for from those. I think the other thing that's quite interesting is when we're working with patients who have uh, motor impairments, so they, they maybe can't move their limbs, we can ask them just to very naturally try to move their limb. Their limb's not going to move, but we can pick up that uh, uh, brain activity as we would normally see it if their limb weren't moving. But when we're working with healthy participants, um, so here we might be looking at other uh, application areas, if you're asking somebody to think about moving a limb but without actually moving it, that's quite a weird sensation and that takes quite a lot of practice to actually achieve that when you're using these kind of technologies is this actually safe to use i mean whether or not it's the um the non-invasive or the invasive methods because you've spoken about scar tissue and uh the electrodes in the brain but just generally uh using this technology yeah so i guess you've got different um uh, thoughts about safety. So obviously, there's the whole surgical side, and this has been well established. We've had implants for for decades. We've had uh, cochlear implants. We've got deep brain stimulation that I talked about, and so this is um, uh, FDA approved in in the US. It's uh, approved for use in by the NHS as well, for example. But I think what's interesting in, in terms of safety is actually thinking about what you're doing with that signal afterwards. So I talked about uh, different application areas. We could use a brain-computer interface for maybe sending a text message or 
sending an email or browsing the internet or controlling a wheelchair or a prosthetic limb. And so depending on the application, you're going to want some safety guarantees that the whatever the device is that you're trying to control, that it's actually going to be doing what you're intending it to do. So what I've been working with a lot in my group is something we call uh, shared control. And with shared control, it means that the, the device itself has some level of artificial intelligence or, or cognitive processing abilities. Um, so it can sense the, the environment in which it's operating and it can understand what is a safe action to, to make actually in that environment. So for example, if we're driving a wheelchair, we've developed a smart wheelchair that can understand the environment. It's got lots of sensors on it, a, a bit like these sort of um, self-driving vehicles, self-driving cars. But it's not self-driving because there's a human being that's controlling it, just that they're controlling it using a brain-computer interface. And when they're using a brain-computer interface, the sort of decoding that we're getting, as I, as I said before, is maybe understanding if they're thinking about moving a right hand or a left hand or their legs. But it's not telling me exactly the sort of finger movements or anything like that that they're thinking about. So when we map that to, to controlling a wheelchair, if we're saying, think about your right hand, make the wheelchair turn right, we're not telling the wheelchair exactly when to turn right or how many degrees to turn right, 10 degrees, 45 degrees, whatever. But we rely upon a certain amount of intelligence within the wheelchair itself to understand what makes sense in the environment. So if we're going down a corridor, and there's an open door on the right, then the wheelchair can take some responsibility and actually go through that door. But if we're going down a corridor and there's a, a stairway on the right, then the wheelchair is going to detect that as a hazard and not allow us to drive down those stairs because that would be dangerous, obviously. Um, most of the systems uh, currently allow the brain to control machines, but is there a future where it maybe goes the other way and it's uh, you can use machines to feedback pressure, touch or some sensation that the uh, brain will understand? Yeah, sure. So for many, many years, um, we've already been doing that using peripheral nerves. So looking at things like cochlear implants, we stimulate the auditory nerve and, and that's been happening since, I don't know, about the, the 1960s perhaps. And more recently, there's been a lot of development saying, okay, if we can do this for, for hearing impairments, can we do this for visual impairments? So people have been looking at uh, developing stimulators to simulate the retina and then looking, okay, what if we get closer to the brain and not stimulate the retina, but actually stimulate the optic nerve itself? And then what if we don't just stimulate the optic nerve, but what if we move in and actually stimulate the visual cortex? Um, and earlier this year, there was a team in the US that's actually embedded in what they call an intracortical visual process, uh, prosthesis into the, the, the visual cortex at the back of the brain. And that's got about 400 electrodes or so. And they're, they're doing experiments at the moment to stimulate directly uh, the visual cortex with this implanted prosthesis. Now, what you're asking about is can we then expand this to other senses as well, like touch? So obviously a lot of um, my work has been um, involving the motor cortex and motor control. And directly behind the, the motor cortex is the somatosensory cortex that, that deals with this uh, touch sensation. 
Um, so there was a really interesting paper that I read a, a couple of years back in uh, Nature by a, a team, I think it was from uh, Seattle. Um, and they've already started some experiments where, again, working with ECOG, so again, that's the, the electrodes that we put underneath the skull, just on the surface of the brain. They've been using that ECOG electrode array instead of trying to record from the area, they've been directly stimulating the uh, somatosensory cortex. And there have been some uh, some initial, I think with only about four patients or something, um, but just some initial trials there. And patients were able to actually identify when that area of the cortex was being stimulated. And they, they sort of described it as not painful, but maybe like a sort of pins and needles feeling that they would get in their, their fingers. So this is this is happening in the research field at the moment, but it needs refining to turn into something that's kind of useful. I think with any kind of technology, especially ones that are, I guess you could say, changing changing the future, there's always some kind of ethical concerns, uh, especially also when you bring in um, artificial intelligence and humans. What do you think are the ethical concerns that need to be addressed with uh, this kind of technology? Yeah, of course, uh, ethics is a, a huge consideration here. And I think um, it's something that, uh, that all of the, the research teams around the world have to apply to their institutional review boards or their ethics research ethics committee in order to get approval before even doing these uh, experiments, let alone thinking further down the line at uh, different applications. And so ethics isn't something that one person can sort of say, yes or no to it's rather a collective decision by um, experts in the field but also the lay public as well are, are sitting on these ethics boards to say what do we think is acceptable what do we think is an acceptable risk um, and when we identify these risks what sort of mitigations can we be be put in so that we can can minimize them we've obviously talked about some of the risks already in terms of uh, safety but going forwards, you know, there the, are uh, considerations about uh, privacy as well. Um, your, your brain signals are, are unique to you. And at the moment, we can uh, decode um, to a certain level, you know, movement uh, intention, for example. We can't, uh, at the moment, decode those sort of thoughts that are maybe going on inside your brain, uh, um, you know, sort of deeper cognition. But perhaps that is something that, that might be possible in the future. And so we, we have to be sort of thinking ethically about how we what, what the risks are, how likely they are to, to occur, and what sort of mitigations we can put in, in place to safeguard against them. A lot of this uh, innovative assistive technologies uh, that have come up in the past have had a very high cost due to the technology that is involved with it. Uh, would you say this is going to be the same issue of uh, this kind of technology if it reached a practical life stage where it's very expensive for the average person to get hold of it? Well, I, I think we have to, again, go back to who the user is, what the purpose is. So if we're talking about assistive technologies that allow people who are maybe in a locked-in state or, or with a, a very high level of paralysis to engage in activities of daily living, to improve their quality of life, to improve their independence. Maybe they can then even 
work <laughs> contribute to the economy um and and so yes you might be talking about uh, something that sounds a really high cost we could be talking uh, tens hundreds of thousands of pounds but over their lifetime and, and what that enables that actually might not be such a high cost if you're thinking about the average person as i said before that kind of link to other technologies that we've seen develop like environmental control units that have developed into widespread smart home technology just the the sheer volume of people using that sort of technology has really driven down the cost but at the same time it does come in terms of different costs like in terms of the reliability of the system if you if you've got something as an assistive technology that you absolutely need in order to to function to to carry out your day, uh, activities of daily living you need it to be incredibly reliable whereas if you're using this technology to play a computer game it doesn't really matter if it's uh, not functioning uh, at a 100% accuracy for example um so you'll see that the the sort of grade of the technology the certification costs will be different depending on the actual purpose but already we we're seeing some sort of mainstream bci technology come out for the gaming industry which the you know the quality of the electrodes is maybe not quite as high as the the medical grade stuff the um processing power is not as 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 good as the the medical grade stuff and we might not be actually able to decode quite as much but we might be using some some things like artifacts so so muscular activity to, to to decode for for the gaming interfaces but just by making that more wide stream that does bring down the cost of the technology across the board and so i think generally it's a, a good thing and looking ahead what is it that you think is the i guess the most exciting application of this technology what is it that you think is going to be the most important thing that happens in this field Whilst I work a lot in assistive technology, I think rehabilitation is going to be the real strength of this technology. So that's, you know, technology that's used on a more temporary basis to bring people back to the level that they were at before. Um we can exploit things like neuroplasticity uh, for rehabilitation. Neuroplasticity um really it comes from the, the word plastic and i'm not talking about the the material that's kind of threatening our environment here um but the notion of 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 plastic if we imagine something that's elastic like a rubber band when you pull that rubber band you're you're applying a stimulus you're stretching it it's changing shape it's changing form but as soon as you m- remove that stimulus and let go it pings back to where where it was to start with So elasticity is not great um if if we're thinking about learning something but if we instead think about plasticity and plastic materials think about something like modeling clay if you apply stimulus and you you sort of mold that into a new shape with with your fingers and you let go it stays in that new shape so in some sense that material has sort of learned that new new shape you can then do it again you can change it into a different shape a different form and it will remain in that that shape you've kind of crafted it into and and that property we call plasticity that same property we can apply to the the neurons in your brain uh, and even your your motor and, and sensory neurons in your body as well using a process called Hebbian learning that was um 
coined by Donald Hebb, I think, in the late 1940s. Um, and basically what this uh, means is that uh, if we have your network of neurons in your, your brain that are responsible for uh, controlling different parts of the, the body, for example, or, or processing sensory information, they need to talk to each other. They need these connections to be made. And what Hebbian learning says is what fires together, wires together. So basically, if we're applying a, a stimulus at one point and we're seeing uh, an, a resultant movement at another point, if we repeat this many, 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 many times, then gradually these networks of neurons strengthen the connections between each other. And so what we can use is we can use brain-computer interfaces to promote neuroplasticity. And we can do this by linking them up. So we've been talking about using them to understand what's going on inside the brain. And we can reward the brain when you're thinking the right thoughts. So you can imagine after a stroke, for example, and you're trying to retrain how to, to move a, a paralyzed arm, you can use that brain-computer interface to understand when you're wanting to try to move that arm, but it's not moving, and link that up with, say, a robotic exoskeleton or some electrical stimulation that might stimulate the muscles in your arm. And we can do that many, many times, but we can kind of have that coherence between when you're actually trying to make that movement yourself and having the success of the exoskeleton or, or some electrical stimulation system um, making your arm make that movement. And then in that sense, the, the brain-computer interface is promoting that Hebbian learning and that neuroplasticity, which will improve rehabilitation. And so in some sense, my, my dream for the brain-computer interface is that it will be there as a temporary thing that will enable somebody to get back to where they were before uh, the injury, for example, and then they won't need that brain-computer interface beyond that point. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Tom Carlson examining the growing industry of brain-machine interfaces. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, you can come find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.